Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. At this time of year, we think about our veterans and we thank them for the service they have given, but all is not well with veterans. Suicide rates are extraordinarily high, and that is the somber subject we're going to talk about today with my guest, Frank Larkin, Chief Operating Officer of the Troops First Foundation and Chairman of Warrior Corps. Frank is a former Navy SEAL, the 40th US Senate Sergeant at Arms, and the father of a Navy SEAL who took his own life. Frank, welcome to the broadcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work you do on behalf of veterans. First, uh, thank you for having me on uh, this program. Uh, certainly, you know, as we recognize Veterans Day, and I think the underlying you know, realization is that for the hundreds of thousands of men and women who've stepped up on the line, raised their hand to serve this nation and to go often into harm's way to protect its safety and security, uh, we have just experienced 20 plus years of persistent conflict. And even though the wars are over on paper, they're not over for these men and women who have come home burdened with challenges that, you know, everyday life is uh, a struggle uh, in many cases to uh, just to be able to stand up and move their way through the day. Um, they suffer from what we have characterized as invisible wounds, uh, a complex rubric of post-traumatic stress disorder, moral injury, which is not talked about very much, substance use disorder, and as we're finding out a growing body of evidence that's pointing towards undiagnosed traumatic brain injury uh, known as TBI. So we thank you, Frank, for your service and we thank you for what you're doing for your colleagues in arms. Uh, and we sympathize with the loss of your son, which must have been a truly terrible thing. Um, is it worse than it used to be? Uh, I have uh, known veterans, obviously going back as long ago as people who served in the First World War. I knew them when I was a boy. Certainly a lot who served in the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, on up to the present day. Are veterans taking their own lives at a greater rate than traditionally? They are. Uh, you know, we're, we're still trying to understand uh, what may be at the, uh, the root of that, but uh, one of the common uh, variables is isolation, uh, that separation from their tribe, so to speak, uh, where, you know, they leave military service, they leave their unit, they leave the family that they have grown accustomed to being around and, and then find themselves, you know, often in a free fall without a parachute or, or a place to land. You know, the transition out of the military uh, back into the civilian life is, is not a, an easy one. And uh, many of them often find themselves uh, slipping into dark places where bad things happen. And uh, I, I think, you know, we have a society that, uh, you know, largely does not understand uh, some of the, 
the sacrifices or the experiences that uh, these men and women uh, have made for the country. Uh, and again, uh, you know, we have seen people like them, you know, as you indicated through the millennium, uh, you know, who have gone forward to protect our nation, you know, at very difficult times. I think that, you know, as, as we looked at World War I and World War II and even Korea, you know, as, as these units, you know, came out of uh, combat operations, they spent many months uh, at holding centers uh, waiting for, you know, the uh, Liberty ships and other carrier ships to, to bring them home. And I think it was a time when, you know, th those, those soldiers, those warriors could decompress, uh, you know, um, in, in a way that they were together even though they may not have been side to side in the same battles, but they had experienced very much the same challenges uh, and, and being able to, I think, understand that they were not alone in their feelings, uh, that others felt, you know, similar things and were experiencing, you know, similar challenges. Uh, I, the difference, uh, you know, that I see in our modern warfare is that everything's so instantaneous. Uh, you know, as you've seen, we have been able to medevac casualties off the battlefield, literally within minutes, and have them back uh, to a, a hospital in the United States in 24 to 48 hours. And many times when these units are returned to the states and repatriated, you know, it's done within days. So they don't have that that you know, dwell time where they can kind of decompress and uh, talk about what's happened to them. And then they come back to the States and back to a society, as they said, that you know, largely doesn't understand what they've been through and almost expect them to snap back into some type of normal you know, behavior and you know, be who they were you know, before they deployed. And th this creates a lot of uh, internal challenges and, and certainly you know, as they deal with some of the demons that uh, many of them, you know, uh, wrestle with every day, uh, it's, it's just a, a steep hill to climb. After the Second World War, in which my father served, so I was aware of it. Uh, I was very young during the war, but I was aware of it afterwards. The difference that I see is that everybody had been affected by the war. Almost every man had served in the war. So the sense of camaraderie was much more widespread. Everybody knew what everybody had endured or had some idea of what they had endured, which is not so today with volunteer forces and a very small part of the population um, going to war or even just serving in the military. I, I absolutely agree with that analogy. I, I think that is, is so very true. When you go look back and, you know, what parts of our population uh, and, you know, as, and again, this is just not a U.S. phenomenon. I mean, you, you go to the U.K., as you've uh, alluded to, Canada, Australia, you know, what we called our Five Eyes partners, New Zealand, and they're all experiencing um, many of the same challenges with their veterans uh, today as we are. So, and, and again, they shared with us, you know, the battle space, you know, World War II and, and beyond that, you know, again, it was it was a, a, a call to action for their, you know, for their whole society and the whole society was invested. And uh, today it's it's different. Uh, a very small percentage serve uh, in uniform. And, you know, I do think this contributes to the, 
the disconnect that, uh, you know, often, you know, serves as the backdrop for some of these conditions. Uh, these, these warriors feel that they're alone. They don't have anybody to talk to. Um, our society is, has become very judgmental. So they're, they're careful about what they talk about uh, for fear that, you know, they'll be, you know, labeled a, a you know, a, a war criminal or, or, you know, some type of, you know, uh, you know, monster. Uh, you know, again, I mean, war is ugly. And uh, anybody that thinks otherwise is, is you know, you know, in, in a dream state. It's, it, it's unfortunately, you know, we engage in conflicts, um, you know, you know, and I'm not going to get into the political debate as to the legitimacy, but, you know, we do send our men and women, you know, to places around the world where, you know, life is not the same as, as Main Street USA. And this is part of the moral injury. You know, we, we try to raise our kids to respect each other, value human life, follow the rule of law, and we train them up to be, you know, our, our, our nation's warriors, and we project them to different parts of the world to deal with these conflicts. And, and again, they experience things, they see things, they do things that really kind of challenge their, their, their moral baseline, their, their sense of right and wrong. And you know, they come home with these burdens and, uh, and they, as I said, you know, earlier that they don't feel comfortable talking about this. That is what you, you mean by moral injury, um, where they've been conflicted in the, in the battle space or the whole enterprise or simply the horrors they have seen that the rest of the world has not comprehended, the civilian world does not understand and is not interested in. I think it's it's all of that, you know, check, uh, check the box all the above, and it affects uh, everyone differently. Uh, I think a lot of it really uh, is related to, you know, you know, their, the stability of their, their, you know, nuclear family, you know, have they have the, you know, what kind of conditions, uh, you know, did, were they raised in, how they grew up, um, you know, what was their motivation for coming into the service? What was their experience in the service? And, and again, you know, you don't necessarily need to be in combat, combat to experience some of the uh, conditions that, you know, lead to PTSD or moral injury or, 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 or dealing with the pain through substance use uh, disorders. But again, it's, it's, it's about the individual, you know, one size fits one, not one size fits all. And that's how we have to approach this is, is really to listen to each one of these men and women and, and understand what they're challenged with and hopefully, you know, guide them down uh, the right path um, to let them, you know, first of all, know that they're not alone, uh, you know, to pull them out of that state of isolation, pull them back into the light, away from the darkness where bad things happen. Frank, you were a SEAL and your son was a SEAL. And even though you must have known the isolation, the separation that he was going through, you weren't able to save him. That must be very painful. You know, Llewellyn, um, that is um, one of the hard truths that I live with right now. You know, if, if you look at my career, um, it was literally 35 plus years of saving other people. And in the end, I couldn't save my own son. And, and that's something that uh, I'm burdened with. And, um, 
though I had people say, you know, you've done everything or you did everything you could for him. Um, you know, the, the, the ground truth is, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't save him in the end. Um, you know, I, I didn't see it coming and, uh, you know, I've got some medical background. I've got a wife who is a medical professional. Um, I mean, this was, uh, uncharted territory for us. And, uh, when he took his life, it was, uh, it, it was, uh, of all the critical incidents and, and, you know, events that I've been personally involved in it, this, this went right to the top when I, when I found him. Before we get into what can be done, uh, let me just comment that it seems to me the turning of the public indifference or even the public criticism of those who bear arms began with Vietnam. Uh, people returning, troops returning from Vietnam did not get the same heroes welcomes that those from other engagements, including Korea, which preceded it by not very much. Right. Um, that was the change, that was the turn. And that was also after Vietnam, we went to a volunteer army. So fewer in the general population knew the realities of military service with or without combat. Um, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with a population which is essentially ignorant of those who serve and protect them? Well, first of all, by coming on shows like this to help people understand is, is, is a big part of it. I, I think that we've got to cut through the political uh, divisiveness that uh, we've seen because this is really about, you know, the, um, the fabric of our nation, uh, regardless of your political party or beliefs. You know, you know we can't erode um, our, our core values and, and what has made this country strong, which literally is a country that has been made up of so many different cultures and people um, that have you know, provided us the opportunities that, that we see. One of the things that you mentioned when we opened the broadcast was physical damage from um, uh, on the battlefield from our own weaponry, brain damage. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and how it happened. Well, first say an experience, um, you know, as my son, a Navy SEAL who deployed uh, multiple times into Iraq and Afghanistan into heavy combat, uh, we started to see signs where he was having trouble sleeping. He became, uh, you know, um, you know, it became a different person uh, is the best way to describe it. Uh, bouts of anxiety, in some cases, depression, uh, hypervigilance. He started forgetting things. Um, he was desperately trying to understand what what was happening to him. And, and you know, you have a, a top tier, uh, highly experienced and, and very decorated SEAL operator suddenly, you know, going over the edge and spiraling, uh, you know, down. Um, he wasn't getting the answers uh, as to what was going on. Um, you know, they, as he stepped forward to get help, um, you know, they focused on his symptoms and, uh, and very often characterized what was happening to him as, as, as a, a mental illness, which- then... I, I wanted, Frank, um, to talk a little bit about the effects of modern weaponry and possible concussions and brain damage. Uh, if you're firing a contemporary machine gun, you have an enormous amount of uh, going on around you, the, the recoil, the noise, the 
the films, the totality of the experience. Um, is this possibly causing brain damage that is not detected and not accounted for? Yes, there's a growing body of solid evidence that is pointing to exactly that. That uh, there's, you know, each one of these weapon systems um, are explosive breaching charges, exposure to the improvised explosive devices, which is the weapon systems the Navy, uh, the enemy used against us in Iraq and Afghanistan, Africa. They all uh, give off a, a blast wave, an invisible blast wave that rolls through the head, through the brain, all sectors of the brain, causing, as we're finding out, micro tears. And these micro tears, uh, unfortunately, are, are not visible uh, in, in a living um, uh, human being at, at this time. Uh, it, it resides at, at a level below where our imaging technology can see it. And we do not have a blood marker that can confirm a head injury. And the key thing to understand is that this is different than uh, the injury that you hear talked about, especially recently with the NFL and other contact sport players where they talk about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. The injury coming from blast exposure is very unique pattern. And once you see it, you, it's, it, you don't need to be a medical professional to see that something serious has happened to the brain, uh, and which is one of the priorities that we have right now is we understand, you know, the weapon systems that we're using and the pressures that they're giving off, uh, what type of brain health risks do they pose to our warriors? And how can we, through good science that comes as a result of doing good science, uh, can help us on, on the prevention side, uh, you know, changing some of our tactics. Uh, and, and for instance, uh, a, a common weapon on the battlefield is the AT-4, known as the Carl Gustav shoulder-fired rocket. Um, you know, you, you, you can talk to everyone who's ever fired one, and after they fire, you know, one of these rockets, they feel like their head is going to come off. And, and especially for those that are within close proximity who you know, experience the result of that blast. And, and so, you know, as you talk to uh, these warriors and, and, you know, the snipers that have been firing the 50 caliber, you know, high, you know, high uh, caliber weapons, other weapon systems, mortars, the artillery, something is going on. And again, we're at a disadvantage right now because the only way that we qualify the damage to the brain from these systems is through post-mortem. Uh, uh, examination and autopsy. Um, this is shockwave damage, uh, essentially. Yes. And all weapons send out shockwaves. They do. And now that we have these closely held high-velocity weapons, these waves are fairly much more serious than they have been when people were firing Martini Henrys, for example. Absolutely correct. Uh, let's move on if we may, Frank, to what can be done? What does your organization do? And how can we get our arms around these suffering people uh, as a nation? Well, one, I think we have to understand what they're experiencing. And, and again, you know, they, they don't want any special treatment or any special handling. They just want, you know, to be heard, you know, and that's a common complaint that we hear from the men and women that are seeking help is that nobody's listening to me. You know, they're, 
you know, our medical enterprise, our support, uh, L, you know, uh, organizations and so forth that were designed to, you know, deal with our active duty and in many cases our veteran population at times are quick to judgment. And uh, so the common thing that we hear is that, you know, nobody's listening to me. And, and I, I reference that, you know, each one of these experiences is individual. So it, it's not a cookie cutter solution. It's, it's really, and this is why we have to listen to each one of them is to understand the challenges that they're experiencing so that we can usher them down the correct paths. Uh, the, as we talked about the effects of blast injury, you know, it's really that first point of triage of, you know, are we dealing with a situation here that, you know, is PTSD alone, uh, because of some type of exposure to a, a crisis incident that is causing, you know, reflective, uh, you know, uh, actions within the body, or is it PTSD further complicated by uh, traumatic brain injury, which, you know, is two different challenges. You know, if the circuitry in your brain is uh, damaged because of blast exposure, blast wave exposure, then that makes uh, the treatment and the, um, the support for a lot of these in individuals a little bit more difficult. We now have more women in combat situations. Um, how is the suicide rate among women veterans? You know, the, the rate is uh, increasing. Uh, we deal with women veterans uh, that uh, have come from uh, a number of uh, different, you know, uh, positions or, or um experiences in the service. Some of them are victims of military sexual trauma. Others are, have been uh, directly participated in combat operations. Uh, others, you know, in support roles. And again, uh, you know, without, you know, creating any judgment, you know, uh, it's, it's about listening to them, uh, you know, what their experiences were, what, what is keeping them, you know, up at night, what is causing them you know, their, their sense of instability and, and, and addressing that. Frank, let's go back to what your organization does, uh, your two organizations, uh, uh, the uh, Troops First Foundation and uh, Warrior Corps. What are their roles? What do they do? And how can people assist you in your work? Well, the Troops First Foundation has been around for, you know, 15 some odd years uh, helping warriors initially, you know, with contact at uh, Bethesda Walter Reed, where we brought many of our wounded warriors back for care. Um, you know, taking uh, warriors back into theater under a program called Proper Exit to, to uh, connect them uh, oftentimes back to their units after they were severely injured and also take them back to the areas where they were injured so that they could have closure because many of them were just, you know, ripped off the battlefield and instantly, you know, disconnected from their units. As I spoke to, you know, the challenge earlier of tribal separation, you know, it's not trivial. It's, 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 you know, incurring another wound when you're ripped away from your brothers and sisters and, and you lose that contact. And then it evolved into helping warriors with uh, dogs and, and, and also with some housing, especially if they had long-term care or Walter Reed uh, as a result of losing limbs and so forth. And, and the Warrior Call initiative came out uh, 
you know, a number of years ago, where we recognized with the escalating suicide rates that the, one of the key components was isolation. So it was a very grassroots effort simply to uh, deputize all those that have served in uniform, you know, uh, in both active duty, veterans, uh, to deputize uh, our family and friends, our communities, to include our first responders and, and have them reach out to somebody who has served and just make a call uh, or take a call from them and, 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 and be honest, uh, have a con uh, honest conversation. Uh, hey, Llewellyn, this is Frank. I, I was just, you know, I was just paging through my phone. I saw your number. We haven't talked in a while. I just thought I'd give you a call, see how you're doing. You know, uh, boy, do you remember the days we were together? We had some pretty good laughs. You know, we, you know, I just think of that, uh, you know, you're in my thoughts constantly. I mean, just simple calls like that. It's amazing as we hear back uh, on reflection from many veterans that we've helped has pulled them out of some bad places uh, because, you know, it transmits that somebody's thinking about them, that they're not alone, that, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're still part of that tribe, even though they're physically not together. Uh, they are, they're still connected, uh, e even after many, many years. So the Warrior Call initiative is, is simple, and it's, it's something that anybody can do with great impact. What is the role of the Veterans Administration? Is it adequate? Is it uh, fulfilling its mission? And what is your attitude to its efforts? Well, my, my view of the Veterans Administration is that, uh, you know, they have... Um, they're very bureaucratic, um, you know, process oriented. They have been making, uh, attempting to make, you know, improvements within the system. I found it very difficult to navigate uh, my son through the system. Uh, and though we, we encountered some, some wonderful people in the, in the Veterans Administration and, and you know, and what they were trying to do, uh, they were just as frustrated as we were with, with you know, often with their own bureaucracy. So, you know, my view is, um, look, we can't do away with the VA. We, we just need to help them. And my, my ask to the VA is, look, there are people on the outside that potentially can offer answers and solutions to some of the challenges that they're wrestling with every day. Let us help. You know, it, it's really, you know, to, to foster a public-private partnership and make this a holistic approach instead of, um, you know, taking on a position of not invented here, we don't want to hear about it. Um, I, I would say the VA has got a job to do. It, it can't go away. Uh, we just need to help them uh, succeed. Frank, as we end here, tell us where we can reach you and your organizations, and we'll put it up on the screen. Very simple. It's www.warriorcall.org. And it'll link you to a number of different options that uh, hopefully will help uh, whoever's uh, seeking more information. Frank, we thank you for your service in the past and for your service today. Uh, everybody, take care of the veteran. They deserve it. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.